Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Edward October. Over the years, I've narrated more ghost stories, horror shows, and creepypastas than I can count. And yet... The crimes discussed on our true crime podcast managed to scare the shit out of me. This program is not suitable for children or the faint of heart. If you are such a person, go ahead and switch off this podcast. Listen to something else. Are you still with us? Well, we've warned you. Well, hello there, Jen. Hey, Cam. How are you? It was a little different intro for us. No? What's going on? Not too much. What about yourself? Oh, you know, end of the year is winding down. I'm ready for summer. Oh, yeah. And, uh... Yeah, I have my kids, my seniors have Thursday, Friday, uh, four more school days. And as you may or may not know, my daughter's graduating. So yeah. I'm a little sad. Um, I'm a little teary eyed. Oh, yeah. It's a so happy the next, time. I don't know if I'd say that, but the next three weeks are going to be crazy. Yep. So there's that. Same here. Last day of our kids' mm-hmm. school is uh, the 19th. So. Of May. It's all fun. And if you can believe it, my youngest one tried to stay home from school today, faking sick. So I'm like, nope, you've only got a few more weeks. You got to go. So yeah, well, good times. Anyway, <clears throat> do you have anything for us today? I'm sure yes, you do. Yes, I do. Awesome. Let's hear it. So, Jen, you know, funny that uh, I say this because this is a little relevant. One of the scariest yet most exciting things is letting go of your child as they are becoming Mm -hmm. an adult and going to college. Now, as a parent, you've done your job getting your child to this point. Now you have to drop them off at college, trusting that they'll be safe and will have a blast while, you know, on the side getting a great education. That is how it is supposed to go. That is, but sadly, sometimes that's not always the case. Today, we are headed to the southern United States, to Mobile, Alabama, which I had no idea struggles with New Orleans as to who claims the right to have been the first one to hold Mardi Gras. That's right. Debate is to which city was the first Mardi Gras. I think New Orleans kind of is the king now, but by all little research, it's this little town here. So in Mobile, you'll find the University of South Alabama. Now, if you're a local or a student, it is simply called South. So, you know, I go to South. 
Gotcha. The year is 1979, and 18-year-old Catherine Foster is really excited to be starting college. Now, Catherine has a beaming smile and a friendly personality, but that girl has brains because she was also the salutatorian of her class. Catherine, who came from a large Catholic family, was very close to her family, so she wanted to stay near them and chose South as her college since she was raised in nearby Pascagoula, Mississippi. Now, there were a few other reasons she stayed close to home, one being that her high school boyfriend, Tom Jodden, who played soccer for the school, and the other was that her bestie from high school, Tish O'Sullivan, was going to go there. The two girls had been friends since elementary school, so it was only natural that they would attend the same college. Early on, Catherine and Tish meet another student by the name of Jamie Cullen. Now, the three of them hit it off immediately, learning that Jamie is from Pascagoula as well. From that moment on, they are rarely seen without each other. So on February 21st, 1980, Catherine, Tish, and Jamie had made plans to go shopping after Tish got out of class. Now, the plan was to meet up at Jamie's car in the parking lot after class. Tish arrives at the car to find Jamie waiting. Now, Tish asks, hey, you know, where's Catherine? And Jamie tells her that Catherine arrived only to have forgotten something and went back in to the dorm to get it, but she had not yet returned. The pair waited for a little bit longer, and then they gave up, assuming that Catherine ran off with Tom and wanted to hang out. They did that a lot. So the two went and left without Catherine, thinking, you know, hey, we'll hook up with her later. Tish went to her two o'clock class that she had with Catherine, ready to tease her for disappearing with Tom yet again and deserting her friends. But Catherine was a no-show for that class. Catherine was not a skipper. Remember, she was a salutatorian and always put her education first. Tish went to Tom and wanted to know, hey, you know, where's Catherine? Running into him at the library, she asked him, and he was shocked. He didn't have any idea where she was. He had no idea she didn't show up for class. And in fact, he hadn't seen Catherine all day. Now, Tish is concerned since she and Jamie believe that Tom was with Catherine earlier when Catherine had failed to meet them. Just a few days earlier, Tom and Catherine had gotten into a fight at a party. Catherine came around a corner at the party and ran smack dab into Tom, who happened to be kissing another girl. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, ugh, I don't miss cool. those days. Mm-mm. Tom blew it off, but Catherine was really upset when it happened. That day, as the sun started to set, Catherine is still MIA. Tish, Jamie, and Tom are all getting extremely worried at this point. It was just about 6 p.m. when Tish decided to call Catherine's parents to inform them that they can't find Catherine. Her parents jump in the car and race up to the campus. They're shocked to learn that since Catherine is 18, and the time of the this time period in time, because we've talked about this, they cannot file a missing persons report. At 18, Catherine is free to come and go as she wants, and so they must wait 24 hours. The officers on campus were given a photo of Catherine and asked to canvas the area and ask if anyone had seen her, you know, running into kids. Campus security met with Catherine's friends and family and learned that this is not typical behavior for Catherine, and she would never just leave and not let someone know where she was going or check in with them. 24 hours later, the missing person report is finally filed. And, you know, honestly, the missing poster is going up all around campus and students are, they're kind of getting scared. They don't know what's going on. This is a small, quaint college. Uh Nothing happens. 
Tish and Jamie hit the campus hard with posters, and they do lots of talking to students to see if anyone has seen Catherine. Now, the next morning was Saturday, and many students, along with the police, have arranged to search for Catherine near some woods by the campus. They weren't long into the search when one of the searchers screamed. It was 10.30 a.m., and Catherine had been found. She looked as if she was simply asleep. And at first, that's exactly what the person who found her thought, that she was just asleep. The head of security raced to get to her and confirmed that not only was it Catherine, but she was dead. Sergeant Wilbur Williams was one of the first to arrive on scene and would be put in charge of the case. As the investigators began to tape off the scene and take a deeper look, some things, you know, how it goes, some things started to jump out to them immediately. Her clothes didn't look messed up, and there were no signs of a struggle. There were no signs of a sexual assault. It appeared that someone had killed her elsewhere and had just placed her body there. It was as if it was perfectly placed. There were no drag marks indicating that she had been pulled you know, through the woods or the loose brush. Right. So the somebody ground, come, picked her up and carried her, right? Yeah, as if she was simply put there yeah. and looked looked as if she were asleep. The ground around her body was not disturbed, proving that there was not a fight in the area or that she had, temp- had attempted to get away or that she had attempted to get away. Nothing on the scene indicated that she had been tied up. What stuck out most was that Catherine, honestly, looked great. Not like she had been missing or out in the woods for two days. Like Sleeping Beauty. That's what I'm thinking of. She looked like Sleeping Beauty. Perfect. All the evidence indicated that Catherine must have went willingly with her killer and or that she knew the person that did this. Or possibly she looked at the person as someone to trust. For instance, like a police officer or a teacher. The medical examiner believes she must have died eight hours prior or at the very longest, 24 hours, since her condition was so immaculate. This leads to a frightening thought. Since Catherine had been missing for 48 hours, did this mean someone kept her captive before killing her? As the news hits the media and the campus, fellow students are in shock, but they're also fearful. Police advise anyone with any information to come forward, no matter how small the detail may be. Police talk to her best friends, Tish and Jamie, to see if they can get a better understanding about the day's activities. Her childhood friend, Tish, is beyond distraught, as you can imagine. Oh, yeah. Tish explains that on that day, Catherine never showed up to meet them for a girl's shopping trip. Jamie would tell the story, as she had it from her angle, adding that Catherine and she were walking to the car when Catherine remembered she left something behind in the dorm. Catherine would go back and get whatever it was, and uh, she urged Jamie to go on and, you know, I'll meet up with you guys in a few minutes. Jamie, just like Tish, is inconsolable. Both girls had solid alibis since they were together when Catherine went missing. And since she went missing, they both were together searching with others. And all of those people, of course, could provide a timeline alibi of them all being together looking for Catherine. Police want to bring in Tom, the boyfriend, in for an interview after the girls suggest that police should talk to him. As they're getting ready to do just that, a call comes in from someone at school. A student was in the dorm Friday night, sound asleep, when she awoke with an asthma attack. Needing to get some air, she opened the window and stuck her head out. As she did, she heard two pops, like Mm. poo-poo, you know, gunshots. Like gunshots, yeah. Now, this was around 2.30 a.m., 
Thinking it was fireworks, she got her breath back and went back to sleep. The idea may have been that it was gunshots didn't register with her until she learned that Catherine had been murdered by a gun nearby. When she went to campus security officers to tell her about the story, they would actually tell a very similar story. The two campus security guards said that they were walking the grounds on the campus that night and were startled when they hear two shots. They believed it to be kids partying, didn't think too much of it, and the shots would fit the timeline of Catherine's death. Police bring in Tom for a talk to find out about his whereabouts over that Friday night. Tom gives them a list of his classes, people he talked to, and, uh, you know, those people could, in fact, confirm his moves as well as any place that he had visited that day. Now, the most important question for Tom was, where were you at 2.30 a.m. Saturday morning? Tom said he was sound asleep and he was alone. Now, we know that's not a great alibi, albeit that's probably what most people would be doing at 2.30 in the morning. Now, even though Tom seems really upset, he tells the authorities he did not harm Catherine because he loved her. Police say, okay, well, why don't you come in for a polygraph test and we'll see what that has to say about you. He loved her so much she was kissing on other women, right? College, I swear. (laughs) (sighs) Boy. Tom, uh, Tom agrees and Tom fails the exam miserably. Now, since police don't have much on him other than a failed polygraph exam, Tom is allowed to go home, but hey, you need to stay nearby just in case we need you again. With nothing to tie Jamie, Tish, or Tom to the murder, the case is in desperate need of a lead. The investigation is into weeks now, and police are trying to, you know, get everything, anyone, someone, anything, to come up with some new evidence or a new lead. Police decide to take a closer look at those that work on campus and may have access to students, even when they don't know it. A man comes into frame and police want to know more about him. The man is a maintenance worker on campus and the man has keys to any and all doors. Now, this means all classroom doors, all building doors, but also all dorm doors. When police run a background check on him, it comes back with an interesting tidbit. He has been arrested for sexual assault. He had offered a South student a ride home one evening, and once inside, he attacked her. She was able to fight him off and escape, but not before he shot her in the leg. And remarkably, the student looked a lot like Catherine. Huh. Police reach out to him, and he is quickly able to give them a solid alibi using his time cards and places of employment. So that failed. Police are frustrated and they go back to step one. All they can do is wait and hope that the wait isn't too long as the case file remains open. It's going to be open for a long time. On February 22nd, 1983, nearly three years since Catherine was located, a call comes into police about an attempted suicide. This is weird. Police report to the scene where they find a male who had completed suicide using sleeping pills. Now, the man's name was Michael Morris, and he had been, you ready, Mm -hmm. a security guard at South. And not just any security guard. He was the one on duty with his partner that fateful night, hearing the gunshots that were believed to have ended Catherine's life. But that is just the beginning of the strange ties to Catherine. As police are at his house, the weird meter goes off big time. 
as they're looking around, they see, well, I guess there's no other way to say it, a shrine to Catherine. There were photos, drawings, writings, maps, and scribbles that were there, but also her autopsy report. Newspaper clippings were pinned up with details circled. It was a bizarre scene, and the stunned police are wondering if this is the killer of Catherine Foster. That wonder deepens as they find something truly surreal in his garage. Hidden high in a space in his garage was a homemade cage. That's right, a cage with a sheeted mattress and pillows inside. It was built from chicken wire with a lock on the outside. Police, which I I can only imagine what was going through their head, are thinking that they're looking at where Catherine Foster spent the 12 to 24 hours prior to her death. This would explain why she did not have ligature marks or how they believed that she was killed elsewhere and placed in the spot in which she was discovered. Wearing the uniform would make Catherine feel comfortable to accompany him to a different location, right? It all made sense and it all fit. There was just one problem. Maris was on duty with another officer that night and they both had reported hearing the shots, meaning they were both together when they heard the shots. Also, if Maris had abducted Catherine and kept her for hours, it is strange because you know what? She was never sexually assaulted. Officers reach out to the Maris family and learn what the cage was used for. It seems that Grandpa had severe dementia and they would actually, which I think is so weird, they'd actually Mm -hmm. lock him in the cage at night so that he would not escape and injure himself. Yeah, that's... Maris was not the killer. Creepy, but not the killer. Yeah, I think that's illegal. (laughs) At least now it is. I didn't know back then, but that's Uh elder abuse, I would think. I guess it's not abuse. You're just locking him in there. In a cage? I I don't even know. I don't... I don't know. I don't know. know. Way in, people. I don't even know. It's above my pay grade. At this point, the case went cold. Police continued to work the case as leads came in, but they were becoming few and far between. Investigators would come and go as the years passed. One decade passed, and then two decades passed. Police were no closer than they were all those years ago. A new detective was put in charge of the case. Sergeant Mike Morgan, who attended South, had become aware of the case while he was a student at the school. Working in the homicide department, he would get tips and he would jump into gear and investigate. Morgan wished that he would be the one to finally solve this cold case and give closure to those who had spent so long looking for it. Mike Morgan was about to get his wish. It was December 4, 2002, when a call comes in to Morgan from the local police department. The officer tells the detective that they have a man at the station with an odd story. One that, if true, would solve the Catherine Foster murder. Morgan, I mean, I can't imagine he's thrilled, hops into the car and travels to the police station, wondering just what this man had to say. Morgan arrives and meets with the man that we're going to call John, because, of course, we are. John tells the detective that he attends a local AA, which is Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, right there in Pascagoula. John attends uh, as a member, but he also sponsors new members with the hopes of keeping them clean. John said that one evening after a meeting, someone came up to him and said that they were troubled by something. Now, a little backstory on this you may or may not know. There are 12 steps in the AA program that one must travel on their journey of recovery. Step nine is as follows. Made direct amends to such people whenever possible 
except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, the belief here is that you need more than words, amends as actions taken that demonstrate your new way of life and recovery. When you make amends, you acknowledge and align your values with your actions by admitting wrongdoing and then living by your principles. Thank you, HazeltonBetty4.org. <laughs> there you go. There you go. That's where I got that from. So John suggested that this person who had come and told him this, write a letter to the person that they feel that they had wronged and then read it to the person. And John even agreed to take them to the person and wait in the car for support, which is super nice. Was he the sponsor? Yeah, he's a sponsor. That's what I said earlier. Okay. You missed that. The letter goes something like this. Dear Catherine, after all these years, I've come to you. It's me, the girl who took your life. I don't know where to begin. I was your friend, but I was obsessed with Tom. And for what it's worth, Tom hated me after your death. Well, okay. Although no one could ever prove that I shot you, everyone knew that I was obsessed with Tom, that I had manipulated my way into his life, and I think many people suspected that I killed you. I'm wanting to tell you my life was shattered after this, and in some of the ways. In this one horrible act, I destroyed two lives, yours and my own. But as I write, I realize that even now, when I come here to sort things out with you, that I am being selfish, Kate. I am acutely aware of what I did that day in ending your life. I robbed your family and your loved ones of a future with you. Only God knows what you might have contributed. At the very least, I robbed you of the chance to experience a full life. No children, no fulfilling career, and the opportunity to continue on the path you were on and to grow in God's love. You were a good girl, a good Catholic. You cared about people and you were going to Ireland to work with children in the war zone to try to bring peace to the communities. You have traveled to Mexico to help the poor in Saltillo. I am wiped out by all the good in one evil, selfish moment. I came here to make amends to you, but there is no way I can make amends for killing you. There is no way to make things right, but at least I want you to know that I realize what a horrible thing I did. And also, for what it's worth, I want you to know that I live my life every day under this. And I realize that no good will ever really come of me because I have this mark on my soul from when I killed you. My children are affected. It is a sickness that grows and affects everyone I come into contact with. I have often thought, Kate, to make things right, I should take my life. But I am too afraid. And I think that even as broken as I am, that my children need me. So, Kate, I am sorry for what I robbed you of, the pain I caused your family, especially your mother, Joanne, who is probably the greatest woman I've ever known. I don't know what else to say, Katie. So goodbye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
At this point, it had been 44 years since the death of Catherine. And there was one word that I left out in the first sentence of this letter. And that sentence was, after all these years, I've come to you. It is me, Jamie, the girl who took your life. Jamie, her good friend. Wow. Well, obviously, they they weren't that great friends. Well, she liked Tom. Are you sure it was 44 years ago? It's 44 years as of today. 30 years since she got justice. The AA sponsor went to the police telling them that the person he was sponsoring confessed to the murder, the murder of Catherine Foster. Jamie told her sponsor that she lured Catherine into the woods under the guise of looking for plants for a class she was taking. Catherine, of course, because it's your friend, mm-hmm. happily agreed. As the two were trekking out into the forest near the campus, Jamie made sure that Catherine was in front of her. As Catherine was picking plants to examine them, Jamie took out a gun, a twenty-two caliber that she'd stolen from her grandmother, and shot her friend in the back of the head. Jamie turned around and looked at her, and the shock was evident. She fell to the ground perfectly. Jamie then took the gun and uh, put another shot in her temple. Jamie then took the gun and threw it in a dumpster on campus and rushed back to the spot where the three girls had agreed to meet to go shopping. So she did all that and remained cool and calm as a cucumber. She's psychopath, kind of, don't you think? Totally. When Catherine failed to show for their shopping date, Jamie explained to Susie that Catherine decided to go out and hang out with her boyfriend instead. And I guess, you know, Catherine had done that before as, Girls. you know. People do, right? People do, right. So the AA sponsor told officers the name of the woman who confessed was Jamie Letson. Now, reviewing the Catherine Foster file, there was no Jamie Letson, but there was, however, a Jamie Cullen. Now, Jamie was, in fact, the same Jamie that was besties with Catherine, but had since been married since college. Jamie also had her fair share of troubles over the years with several arrests to her name. Drug troubles, theft troubles, you know, Mm -hmm. just not in a good place. Things like this have to hang over you. They have to. I don't know. Some people seem to... I be mean, okay? Yeah. Like, she went 30 years without yeah. having a until conscience she until she got sober, and then she had to do her 12 steps. Back at the time of the investigation, Jamie had an alibi, and it checked out, but there was just a little mistake about all that. This was February, and it was cold. Catherine, you know, was believed to have been killed within this window because her body, her body had been in such good shape. But the problem was that it was so cold, her body was preserved. So when they found her, they thought she had been killed. You know, she'd she'd only been there for so long. But the truth of the matter was she was there much longer. So she had been killed that very afternoon. But because the cold weather kept her body in pristine condition, they assumed it had been over a 24-hour period when it really was just a mere couple hours. So this goes back to those gunshots that were heard by the security guards and at that at that time, they heard it, it was around 2.30 in the morning. So that's when they assumed Catherine had been killed, when in actuality, she had been murdered like 2.30, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, somewhere in there, right? So the fact was, is when they heard those gunshots for once in the world, they really were fireworks. They oh, weren't gunshots. Oh, really? Ah. Uh. So all of this threw the time of death off. So they were looking at somebody that had murdered her at around 2.30 in the morning. 
Mm-hmm. So in the middle of the night. When it was when 12 fact, hours earlier or later. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So what police need now is that letter that Jamie wrote about Catherine. Police go to Jamie's stepfather and learn that uh, they, they basically knock on the door and they're like, hey, you know, we heard about this letter. And the stepfather says, you mean the letter? <laughs> so, which is so weird. If you had that, like you're keeping that. I, I don't, I don't. You and I have all talked about like our kids and if they did something. I, it, I don't. it would hurt, but you would turn them in, right? You have to. You have to. So he goes into a locked cabinet, gets it, turns it over to police, and they're like, yep, that's it. So it turns out the motive was very simple. It was just jealousy over Tom. Jamie wanted Tom for herself, and the only way to get that was to take Catherine out of the picture. Well, there's other ways, but, you know. For her. I mean, this is her. She could just get over it and just, you know, that Tom's maybe not interested in her and. I mean, I think killing your friend to get to their boyfriend is a little overzealous, but... A little much? A little much? I mean, for me... Maybe. On November 21st, 2008, Jamie Lutzen is arrested for the murder of her friend, Catherine Foster. She was located at a Jackson, Mississippi shelter and taken into custody nearly 30 years after Catherine was killed. Jamie would, of course, shocker, plead not guilty in court even after confessing on tape the whole grisly story to police officers. What? Was she trying to do like an insanity plea or you're going to tell me? No, they just do that. No, there's no telling. They just do that. The defense would use that, uh, that they would come out and say that security guard was the one that actually killed Catherine Foster, the one that had uh, completed suicide with the shrine. But that's not true. Thankfully, the jury did not believe that to be the case, and the security guard is cleared. On May 27, 2010, Jamie Cullen Letson is found guilty of first-degree murder and receives a life sentence. She is incarcerated at the Julia Tutwiler Annex in the Alabama Department of Corrections. Her first possible parole date, yes, that's right, takes place this year on November 1, 2023. And at that point, she will have served 13 years. Wow. uh, Some 30 years after Catherine Foster. Only 13 years, huh? So I guess a little side note here, and I didn't even write this down, but I guess Tom, I think it was at the funeral. She went to the funeral and poor Catherine Foster's parents, you know, of course, Jamie goes to the funeral and she's, you know, one of Catherine's best friends. So she is, you know, dare I say, feigning uh, sadness and all that. So Catherine's uh, parents were just devastated to learn that. And they really had a hard time believing that Catherine's good friend did this to her because she sat there on the pew in the church with the funeral thing. But uh, Tom had come up to her and he basically said, I know you did this. I know you have something to do with this, but they could never prove it. And, you know, at first she was one of the first because she, you know, her, Tish and Tom were, of course, on the hot seat because they were her friends Close but circle. she she had that little alibi and then the time of death was skewed because of the weather and all of that and how perfect she looked but you do have to think about like she wasn't sexually assaulted right so then you got to think huh like who would kill her in Just the head to kill her yes it, like so uh, i don't know i'm curious how do you think was there any clue on how tom su- suspected jamie no, he just, well, because I think she was like madly in love with him and he knew it. And he was like, I, I know you have something to do with this. I don't know. You, you know, people know. But and 
I guess maybe like being a, a good person, a nice person, Catherine was just like, well, this is my friend and she just like likes my boyfriend. You know, yeah. you know, dare I say some people we went to high school with and that happened. Right. Like, you know, oh, so I it do. happens. But Hit yeah, me with your best shot. That's right, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, real tough cookie. <laughs> Yeah, but I wonder if, like, wouldn't you say to the police, you know, you're Tom and you're just like, you know, I know we're friends, but I kind of well, have I a think, suspicion. I think, he, I think that he, I'm sure he did, yeah. but the they just the whole time of death was skewed. Right. Like, she literally was killed. Like, she, talk about cold-hearted, her, Tish, and Catherine. So, Jamie, Tish, and Catherine were all going to go out shopping that right. day. So they were all meeting at the car. And this is like a 15 minute window. So she says, hey, can you come help me, you know, get these plants or whatever? Takes her out, shoots her, races back to the car, not even a sweat broken. And then says, oh, yeah, Catherine, whatever. She forgot something in her dorm. She's I'm sure she's hanging out with Tom. Let's just go. I mean, it was like that. Wow. So it was like just everything aligned up perfectly. Yep. Yep. Wow. And you wouldn't think that, you know, like when no. we were teenagers, we'd be like, let's go. Let's go to a and Let's go to McDonald's. Yeah. You know, all that stuff to go. But yeah. Wow. So uh, the whole, I guess, I mean, she had to know that she was going to, I don't know, face justice and writing a letter. The thing for me is that the sponsor takes her to the gravesite where she reads over Catherine's grave this letter. And this whole time, that sponsor has to be like, WTF? What? (laughs) And not automatically drive her to the police station. Yeah. So it's like, uh, you, you know, because part of that immense thing, the 12-step stuff, is that you have to come clean, right? No matter what happens, you have to. Oh, and she did. She came clean. Oh, she did. She did. So, yeah, and, you know, I, I honestly, and I, I hate to say this, if she wouldn't have told the sponsor, if she would have written the letter and just done that on her own and then got rid of the letter, which mm-hmm. is weird because she did give it to the stepfather, right? So there were other people that knew. But if she would have done that on her own, she still would have gotten away with it. Yeah, she would have gotten away with it. I mean, 30 years later, you know? So, yeah. Well, I will that, say that she it must have weighed a bit heb- heavily on her since she became an alcoholic, I'm sure. And I think that maybe had all a lot of that to do with it. All of it had to do with that. Like that you can't kill your one of your good you can't kill anybody, much less your best friend and not have that basically ruin your life. I mean, wait, correction. I say that as a normal person, person. like a person that is not Well, in her mind, she thought she would just kill Catherine, Catherine and, then and then Tom would her, love me. Her and Tom would just run off into some sunset. Well, together. and you you remember in that letter that like, here, let me go back to this a second because this is stuff that you I swear I swear to goodness you just can't make this up. In her letter to Catherine, she says, "I wanted it, again. I don't know where to begin. I was your friend. I was obsessed with Tom, and for what it's worth." Tom hated me after your death. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, although no one could prove that I shot you, everyone knew that I was obsessed with Tom and that I had manipulated my way into his life. And I think many people suspected that I killed you. But sus- being a suspect or suspecting somebody of something does not make right. you guilty. Without any truth. So, yeah. So in that letter, also, if you read between the lines, it's very like, you know, I did this to you and I'm so sorry, but also my, look at me, my life was ruined. Yeah. My life was shattered and um, I destroyed both of our lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, Poor yeah. Poor baby. So, yeah. 
at least you yeah, got to lead, lead a shattered life, but it was All a life nonetheless, years. right? Mm-hmm. 30 years, 30 plus 18. That's a lot. Wow. But 30 years living. Yep. Jealousy. I tell you. Do you and want no me offense, to sing jealousy? I, no. I love jealousy. men. I do. I, but I don't think I would ever kill anybody over one. Well, this I, I just was like thinking about you because we've been friends and like we get mad at each other. Like there's no tomorrow, but I don't like there has to be a screw loose. There has to be a little. I don't want to say that we're judging people, but sometimes like it's just there's it's a disconnect somewhere. Yes. Something yeah, is that makes them a bit off killing thinking that I will kill you for because that will make such and such love me. Mm-hmm. That's not proper thinking. And I'm That's I'm guessing that, that you know, looking into all this, there's probably lots of it. Catherine was super smart, super cute, just a good girl, sweet girl. Like, and uh, there's probably so a lot of reasons to be jealous of her. Yes, right? that's what I'm saying. So it's not just Tom. It's, right. I, I, but I don't know. I but don't know. there's jealousy and then there's murder. You know what I mean? Yeah. I oh, yeah, just, totally. It is messed up. It is see. messed up. Wow. So now. is she still in prison? She's out of prison? She is still in prison. No, she's still in prison. Mm-hmm. And her parole date would be this November. That's her first shot at getting parole. November so, 1st of this year. Um, interesting. And she's getting up there in years, you know, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I doubted they would let her out. She's only served 13. But ideally, if she had went in when she killed her in 19, was it 1980, right? She probably would be out today. 19, I forget the year because it's been so long since I started. The, 1970, 1980. Yeah, right. 1980. So, so that is the story of Catherine Foster and it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. I don't know. Kids, like their little minds aren't, they're just not developed yet. So, uh, do we have any uh, promos? We do. We do. Speaking of beauty and brains, we it's have me. It's Camille. It's Camille. <laughs> Thank you. Dad. We have the podcast "Murder She Told" by our ever so sweet friend Kristen. She is a certified victims advocate, and her podcast focuses on Maine and the New England area. It's a great podcast. It's even won some awards, and I forgot to write them down before we came so but it is award-winning podcast and i wish we were award-winning I'll, I'll make awards for us but anyway Kristen, her, her she'll have victims families on and they'll be interviewed she'll interview them and all sorts of stuff it's a really great podcast i follow her on all the social medias i've listened to her a lot of the cases i've never heard before but it's great. I really and she is a true advocate. She is a true, a true advocate, advocate for she those. Really is, and she's adorable. She's about sweet. And, and when I say she's cute, I mean she like models. She does. She's an actress. She's an actress. Oh. Yeah, like she's all around. She's a great girl. She's good people. Great woman, I should say. But she's yeah, good people. I really like her. She's really sweet. We just actually really got to know her last December. Whoops! I just hit my microphone. But we really met her in December, and um, she's fantastic. Totally love her. So seriously, Murder Check She Told out. is the podcast, and make sure you listen. All right. I have stay it. tuned for that. All right. You want to tell the good people where they can catch us in August? Yes, in August, the 26th, 27th, and 28th, I believe, something like that. At the end of August, we will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Austin, Texas. Woo! You can go to the website of the 
truecrimepodcastfestival.com and get tickets. Come see us. We'd love to see you. There's a whole bunch of podcasters that are going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, good people. It's a fun time, people. really. It is. Yeah. We always have a good time. So, yeah, come see us. We'd love to have you come see us. Can I say come That's see right. us anymore? Come see us. Could, hey, guess what? But could they come see us? They could come could see they us. Come, they could come see us. Totally yeah. think yeah. they should come see us. I really think, hey, if you want to, come see us. All right. Let's wind it down. These people are like, shut up. I know. Okay. Until next time, remember, lock your doors. And keep passing by those open windows. Okay. Uh, bye-bye. Love ya. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Cam. For more information about this episode, as well as all the sources I used, please check out our show notes or the podcast website at ourtruecrimepodcast.com. Our True Crime Podcast is developed and created by hosts Jen and Cam. Original music and audio mix of all our True Crime Podcast episodes is courtesy of Nico Bertese from We Talk of Dreams. Listener discretion is provided by Edward October from October Pod VHS. Our True Crime Podcast is executive produced by Nico Vertese and Dick Bain. Make sure to like and subscribe to Our True Crime Podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. We can be reached on Instagram and Facebook at Our True Crime Podcast or on Twitter at Our True Crime Pod. You can email us at Our True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. If you really like the show, make sure to check out our Patreon at Our True Crime Podcast. Our True Crime Podcast is an OTC production. Growing up as a latchkey kid in a small town in Maine, I always assumed I was safe. After all, unless it made national news, murder wasn't something people talked about around here. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Murder, She Told is an award-winning true crime podcast that dives into the lesser-known cold cases and true crime stories from Maine, New England, and beyond. Created by me, Kristen Zevi, a victim's advocate. Murder, She Told uses detailed storytelling with an investigative twist, weaving in original interviews with those closest to the case. Rooted in deep research, straightforward narratives, and the victims and their family at the center of every story, Murder, She Told will speak to any listener, no matter where they call home. Learn more at MurderSheTold.com or find Murder, She Told now wherever you get podcasts. Also, if Maris had abducted Catherine and kept her for hours, it's strange. Because you know what? She was never sexually assaulted. Uh, what? Oh, shit. What? Something licked my toes. <laughs> What do you mean? And it's it scared me. It's Gilbert. I didn't see that he was oh, in here. God, he, you scared me. I thought it was you a were ghost. scared. You were scared. Oh my god! <laughs> I was like, oh, where's the oh, god? Oh Gilbert, god. damn it! Uh, sorry. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I thought you liked that. You only uh, like the lick, licking of the toes. What's <laughs> coming? I'm not. Well, you're talking about some guy who has this weird fetish locking women up, and all of a sudden, somebody something licks my toes. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Sorry. Oh shit! That's uh, scary. Like my my heart's racing. I thought, oh my uh, god, what happened? Mine's oh, racing too. Shit! I'm sorry. 
All right. I didn't see. Well, nothing. Gilbert loves of- this off. Gilbert loves this office. And when I came down here, the door was open and I didn't eat. The lights were off and I didn't even see him. He must be in have a place to. I don't know. I didn't see. Him. I got you. Yeah. Jesus. All right. I'm sorry. I'm just going to go back like a sentence or two. <sighs> Nico, before Jennifer's got a pervert in her basement. <laughs> Only a 14 or 18 pound cat. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.